Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, tonight, if you want to turn to John chapter 6, as uh, we pick up the story in the Gospel of John, and uh, I'm going to cover 49 verses tonight. Shocking, isn't it? You don't even believe I can do it, huh? I'm going to do it, okay? So I hope you recorded your favorite TV shows because we're going to be here for 49 verses. Now, just by way of introduction uh, to the whole thing, um, my wife and I, I think it was uh, Olivia, but I think last month we got rid of our regular cable. We had a certain cable company and um, it it was not working very well and then they jack up the price to an astronomical amount. Has anyone ever experienced that before? Yeah, and so, you know, I said, we're, we're so done paying this much money for something that doesn't work that well, so we got rid of it, and we got, we got Hulu for, you know, that lower price, and we got a real good cable Wi-Fi company for even lower price, and so we're saving over 50%, and, and, and it's still, and even and since it changed everything, it's still, I wanted to make sure, and it still has all, all the options that I had with the other company, because I want to be able to get, you know, Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. I need ID Channel. I need to catch a smuggler. Anybody watch to catch a smuggler? Yeah, I gotta watch that. I'm I'm like so addicted to that show right now. I think it's so hilarious and then it's sad at the same time. So I, I need all this. So I, I like all these options. We live in a world of options, do we not? You could tell. You probably know me. I take my wife out to expensive expensive restaurants and stuff like that. In and out, Chili's. It's you know. Just blow money, okay? Just blow money. And uh, at Chili's, we go there because we like the three for ten ninety nine. Any amens out there? And that one right there. And so with that, you get the main course, and then you get an option. And I always choose the option of the enchilada soup. Anyone ever have that? That's like one of my favorite things right now. The enchilada soup. And Olivia has her app, and she gets the free chips and salsa. And I get the big cheese. And we've ran into Ralph and Jane there at least 20, 245 times, I think it is. Yeah. They're always there, okay? They're always there. And so they give you all these options. So we live in a world of options. Now, with that said, also within our world of options, we live in this world that has now come to this place where religions are, in a sense, there's all kinds of options. And they, their statement is like, all roads lead to God, right? Now, we've already shown how that is not possible back when we taught in the series Answers because there's the law of non-contradiction. So if something is true, the opposite of it cannot be true. Therefore, since the opposite of what is true cannot be true, therefore all roads cannot lead to God because Christianity says, I cannot work my way to God. God had to come down to me through His grace and my faith. All other religions say, I can work my way to God. They both can't be true by the law of non-contradiction. And so all roads do not lead to God. Now, what we're going to end with tonight, or almost at the end, it's near the end, is that Peter is going to come to this place where um, after all the dialogue, after all the ins and outs of what we're going to talk tonight on, he's going to come to that place where there's only one option. And he's going to make the statement, to, you know, to whom shall I go? Only you have the words of eternal life. You're the only option. There are not other options 
to get to heaven. You're the only one. After this whole dialogue happens, as Jesus has now you know, done what he's done with the multiplication of the bread and loaves and all the dialogue in between. So with that said, remember, one option. He comes down to one option, and that is Jesus. To whom shall I go? We're going to pick up the story now in chapter 6 and verse 22, and it says this. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with the disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near uh, to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats <clears throat> and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him, notice they're seeking him and they find him. That's big right there. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, by way of introduction, like I said, Jesus has multiplied the fish and the loaves. They know, and we know from other Gospels in this story, that Jesus tells the disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side, or go to Capernaum. And so everybody has seen this. They know that Jesus has not gotten in the boat, but the disciples left. So the next day, they're like, okay, where, where's Jesus? There's nobody here. And we know Jesus didn't get in a boat, and Jesus isn't here. So they go looking for him. They're in Tiberias, which is the southwestern side of Galilee. Capernaum is in the north part of the Sea of Galilee. So they probably scramble around the lake as fast as they possibly can. And they find him in Capernaum, and then they ask him, Lord, or Jesus, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, here's the big deal, and here's where everything begins in this part of the story. Because in this part of the story, look at verse, uh, uh, where is it? Uh, verse, uh, verse 24 at the very end. It says, they came to Capernaum, and they're what? Seeking him, right? Now, they're looking for him. In verse 25, it says they what? They found him. Now, that's very important. They're looking for him, and they find him. But the real question is, why are they looking for him? That's the real question. Because it almost sounds like, oh, we want Jesus, huh? But the question is, why are they seeking him? Because this is going to turn into this really, at times, comical interaction between them and him. So I think I have five or six fill-ins, and here's the first one. Jesus knows our motives, does he not? And so their motives are going to be exposed in a very short time. Here, look at verse 20, well, right away. Verse 26 says this. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate, off, ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, you don't want me. You want what I can give you, huh? Now, let me, let me illustrate this. So about um, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was, um, I was at my daughter Vanessa's house, uh, Peter and Vanessa, and their daughters, my granddaughters, Willa and Scotty, and Olivia and I were eating dinner with them. So I'm sitting here, and Willa's here. Willa's almost three years old, so, you know, she already knows how to save the world and stuff like this. She knows what to do. And she's having chicken and rice, but she will not eat the chicken. And so her mother, Vanessa, which I enjoy watching the whole interaction because, huh, it's payback time, but... Willa will not eat. And so she says, if you don't eat some chicken, you're not going to get the surprise. And I thought, what's the surprise? Well, there's little ice cream, drumstick ice creams. And I thought, oh, and Willa's sitting next to me. So what I do as a good granddaddy, yeah, 
I, I, I go like this, and they, all, they can all hear me. And I whisper in her with my hand over, I go, just pretend like you're eating the chicken, and I'll sneak you an ice cream. And she's like, and she can't believe what she's hearing. She's just stunned, and I go, and they go, eat your chicken, you're not going to surprise I go, just pretend, pretend like you're eating the chicken, and I'll get you the surprise. Granddaddy will go sneak you the ice cream. And she looks at me. Now, let me say before I tell you what she said, this girl will not come around me at all. They say, go hug granddaddy. Nah. Go tell granddaddy I love you. No. And when I said, just pretend, just pretend, and I'll sneak you an ice cream. She looks at me, she's like, and she says, I love you. <laughs> it was the greatest moment. And you're trying to keep a straight face, but I just burst out laughing because it's like, yeah, you love me only because of what I'm going to give you. That's the only reason you love me right now. And that's exactly what's going on here. Does Jesus know our motives? Yeah. Absolutely. Over, and if you want to drop this down, it's not in your notes. And in Proverbs 16, 2, it says, All the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. He knows our motives, doesn't he? Now, point two, and that's this. Be as passionate for spiritual food as we are for physical food. Now, look at verse 27. <clears throat> Jesus says now, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Now, <clears throat> Jesus, uh, I should say, they, uh, no, Jesus brings up bread in verse, in, in the previous, in verse 26, he exposes the motives. But now he's moving to this whole different area right now where he, he's questioning them on passion. What's your passion? Don't just be passionate because they're following in for bread. Don't just be passionate for physical food. Be passionate for spiritual food. You follow so far? And that's true of all of us too. Be as passionate for spiritual things as we are for physical things. How many of you have ever been passionate for food? Everybody raise your hand right now, okay? Everybody has. He says, be as passionate for spiritual food as you are for physical food. Now, let's read on. Verse 27. Do not, let's read 27, 29. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to what? Eternal life. He's differentiating. Which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father has set his seal. Say seal. We'll come back to that. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do? So that we may work the works of God. And when you see the word, what shall we do? You find that uh, other times when it comes to repentance with John the Baptist talking to people and then Peter on the day of Pentecost. What shall we do? Now, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, first, let's take verse 27 at the bottom. He has set his seal. Now, when it means a seal, what the idea of a seal is, if you look it up, it's, uh, they would wear the signet ring, and they would have their scrolls, and they melt the wax to seal the scroll. They'd take their signet ring, and they'd press it into the wax, and that signet was their seal. It's the identification of who that scroll is from. It came from so-and-so. That's their seal. Jesus, or John, is writing that Jesus is saying, 
that the Father has set his seal upon Jesus. He's identifying, the Father is identifying Jesus as he is God. He is the God-man. But it also says, not in your notes, in Ephesians 1.13, that the Holy Spirit has set his seal on every follower of Christ, on you and on me. So there's an identifying mark on us spiritually, somehow, that we are followers of Christ. And you don't have to look very far to think about identifying marks for identification. The Antichrist is going to use that with the 666, right? They'll be identifying marks. You look at the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7, chapter 14. They are sealed on their foreheads. Remember that? So there's identifying marks. And I think if you go back into Ezekiel, there's a section there where they, they are marked on the forehead on a physical mark, identification. Can I give you a wild one that I've believed for like 30 years? Can I give you one real quick? In the Old Testament, if you read the priest's garments, what they're supposed to be wearing um, in Exodus, they, they wear a turban, and then on the turban, there's a, there's a chain-type thing, and on the chain, it hangs down, and there's a little plate that hangs on the forehead of the priest. And on the plate that sits on the forehead of the priest are the words, holy to the Lord. Now, I've always felt, not always, about five, six years into my faith, I started thinking, you know what? There, that's a physical thing. But there's got to be a spiritual dimension to that also. That when you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are identified as holy unto God because God is holy and we are in him and therefore we are holy. Amen to that one right there? So we're sealed. We're the sealed of God. Now, <clears throat> now I want you to notice in verse 27 to 29, there are four words in there very important. He says, the words work, give, do, and believe. He tells them to work for the food of eternal life. But then he adds, but you can't earn it. But wait a minute, work for it, but you can't earn it? That's kind of contradictory, right? But then he gives you definition. He says, give, it's going to be given to you. It's given freely. And what is the work? And then he defines it. The work to, is to just believe. That's the work of God, just believe. And so, we know that believe in the Gospels now, if you've been here for a while now, it means to jump in all the way, two feet first, in the deep end. It doesn't mean, well, I believe in God. No, it's surrender. It's all the way. So that's the work of God. Believe. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ in whole life. Now, verse 30. Um, so they said to him, here it comes. Here comes their little, they're going to try to get Jesus. And this is so funny to me. So they said to him, what then do you do, Jesus, for a sign so that we may see and believe you. What do you perform? Then they add, our fathers, our ancestors, they ate manna in the wilderness, in the desert, as it is written. And then they quote verses at him. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, think about this. They're asking him, what sign do you do so that we may believe that you are who you say you are? Right? That's what they're saying. Okay. That's kind of puzzling because you go back and look at verse 14 of chapter 6. Therefore, when the people saw the what? Sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. The prophet is the prophet of, of Deuteronomy 18.15, the Messiah to come. So they already believed this, right? And now these same people are coming back and saying, what sign do you perform? Wait a minute. He's already performed this big sign. They've already confessed that they believe that he's the prophet, but then they give 
Here's what's funny. They give Jesus a history lesson. They say, Jesus, because they're trying to get more bread, guys. They say, you only gave bread to 5,000 men one time. Moses, he gave bread to our ancestors, 2 million people every day, except on Sabbath, every day for 40 years. What do you say to that, Jesus? See how they're trying to get him? They're trying to bait him in there. Now, how many know you shouldn't bait Jesus? It's just a, it's, it's a really bad move. Now he's going to correct their bad memories because this is a bad memory. Now, look at verse 32. Jesus responds. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. He says, you are incorrect. Moses didn't give you bread. Moses didn't make the bread. Moses didn't drop the bread from heaven. It was my Father in heaven who gave you the bread. You are completely mistaken. Now, verse 33, he continues. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Remember the word world right there. We'll get back to it in a second. Verse 34, he said, Then they said to him, now they're going to respond. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So Jesus brings up bread from heaven. They think he's talking physical manna, correct? Correct? That's right. <clears throat> so they're thinking, give us that bread now. They think they've got him. Then give us the bread now. Now, here's the thing, though. We'll get to the bread in a second. But look at this, that word world. Who do they give it to? Who does Jesus give it to? The whole world. You know why that's fascinating? When the bread came down in the Old Testament, the manna, where was the only place the bread dropped? On the camp of the Israelites. And now Jesus says, I'm going to give bread to the whole world. Now you see where the expansion of what originally was. You go back to the word given to Abraham that this was going to be a blessing to everyone, to the whole world. You go back to when Jesus' time of birth and the angel, and, or when Mary's prophesying, he would be a light to the Gentiles, the whole world. And so here comes Jesus, and he uses the bread illustration as an expansion that he's going to reach the whole world. Now, look at verse 34. Look at that statement again. Then they, I'm going to give you a question. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. They think they've got him. They think it's about physical bread. They go, Lord, give us this bread. Who do they sound like? We've read about this person previously. Who do they sound like? The Samaritan woman. She thinks it's physical water, right? Oh, give me this water so I don't have to come all the way here again. They're thinking, oh, give us this bread. So you see the same patterns, and they're not understanding that this is a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. Now, number three in your notes. He says, number three is seeing does not always lead to believing. And it sure doesn't. I'm going to read 35 through 40. It says this. Jesus said to them, I am. The first I am statement. There it is. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not, not cast out. 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, Jesus makes the first I am statement. Back in verse 30, they said, give us a sign and we will what? And we'll believe. And then you jump in verse 36 and he said to you, you have seen me. In other words, you've seen the signs I've done and you do not what? And you don't believe. See, seeing does not lead to always believing. Now, I like verse 37 because he says, Whoever comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And the word casts out there, it's the idea within salvation. And it literally is the idea of the one who comes to me, I will not throw outside. In other words, whoever comes to Christ, he's not going to reject you. He's not going to throw you outside. You belong to him. And and that's it. You'll never be rejected. And that should comfort every one of us in this room. Amen to that one? Now look at verse 41, 42. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, what? I am. I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, verse 42, and here's the rationale. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Now, why are they grumbling like their ancestors grumbled? Why are they grumbling though? There's two reasons. Number one, what did Jesus use the term again? I am. That's the I am statement. In other words, they know their scriptures, huh? They know that Moses one day went to the burning bush. And as that bush spoke, God spoke from the bush. Moses said, who shall I say sent me? Because you're going to go to, I'm sending you to Egypt. He says, say I am that I am has sent me. Now the I am is in theological terms, is it called the tetragrammaton. It just simply means four letters, Y-H-W-H. He's a self-existent one. So Jesus has now proclaimed that he is the self-existent God. He had no beginning, no end. He just exists. Now, that's mind-boggling, but that's who he just proclaimed that he is. He is the I Am. Now, they grumble, because to proclaim that, remember, he's in Capernaum. Where did Jesus grow up at? Nazareth. Nazareth is not far from Capernaum. So they're grumbling because they say, wait a minute. We know your mom and dad. We know where you grew up at. And now you're, you're proclaiming this. How can you say you came down from heaven? We saw you grow up. We saw you as a kid. This is not computing. It doesn't make any sense. So that's why they're grumbling about him right there. Now, number four in your notes, and that's this. Jesus will separate the wheat from the chaff. And he does. Now I'm going to read nine verses going to separate wheat from chaff. Now, verse 43 to 54 says this. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We're going to see that again in, in about 20 verses or so. It is written in the prophets... And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. 
meaning himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now, I like the fact that they're questioning where he's from, and he's the bread of life. Where was the Messiah to be born? Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. What does the word Bethlehem mean? House of bread. And he's the bread of life. I like stuff like that. That was a free one. Verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Whoa. He says, now he's differentiating physical, spiritual. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another. Now they're not grumbling at him. Now they're fighting with each other. Saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever read that and you're just like, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Just come on, raise your hand. I'd just like to know. It's like, that's kind of weird, huh? It's weird, but if you think of it on a physical level, see, <clears throat> Jesus is now, he's speaking symbolism. He's not It's not cannibalism. It's a symbol. He's, it's a symbolism. So you have to understand that. <clears throat> So he talks in verse 49, actual manna, physical. Then he moves to verse 50, the bread out of heaven. Then he moves to spiritual. This is symbolism. And they don't get it. They don't get it at all. You know what's why, one of the reasons why, because when they keep it in the physical, why it's so tough for them to accept? He says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Old Testament law, what can't a Jewish person drink? Blood. And so he makes that statement. They're thinking physical, not symbolism, and so they're like, they're like, you know, they're shocked because you know we we can't drink blood. So let's take the symbolism and let's let me try to apply what he's actually telling them and telling us. When he says "eat my flesh," the word "eat" the Greek word means to chomp or munch. To chomp or munch, you have to chomp or munch on Jesus. That sounds weird, huh? Okay. <clears throat> so let me try to explain. With a, another Jim Del Campo ridiculous example. So last, um, last October, um, I went, uh, there was a group of us, we went to walk the Narrows in Zion National Park. Anybody ever walked the Narrows before? Yeah. I know you made it. You got there ahead of us and you made it in the group. So, Reggie and I, uh, we caught up with the group, and um, on the way there, because we went a different day, we went to Bryce first, because I had never been to Bryce. I had been to Zion three times before. So he said, we, when we spent the night in Vegas, but we had to get there. He goes, there's this place inside the Orleans that has this, this Cajun food. Let's go there. I go, okay, let's go there. So we, we go there, and I order this gumbo, Cajun gumbo. Has anyone ever had Cajun gumbo? Yes. Is your mouth watering right now? Yes. <laughs> and so I had never had gumbo in my entire life. And so they bring this, and it was like this, I'll never eat this whole thing. 
and it had a mound of rice in the big bowl on the side, and it's got, my mouth is watering. <laughs> it is. It's got the shrimp in there. It's got the, the, the sausage all cut up, different kinds of sausage, and the rice is in there, and this, this piece of, oh my, I was just, I was just, it was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. It was so good that um, two months uh, later, three months later, when, I, when Olivia and I went there to go perform a wedding, I said, Olivia, we got to get there because I know that at 3 o'clock, the lunch special ends there, and I can't, we can't eat the big bowl. We got to get the lunch special, which was still huge. And I took her there, and I'm just, now as I'm eating it, and my mouth is still watering now thinking about it, I'm just chowing down. Have you ever chowed down on something that you just love it so much? Anybody? I mean, I'm just, I'm just, how many, and you're chowing, munching and chowing, and when you're so full, you wish you were still, you could start over again, and you wish you were starving again. You know, you know that feeling? That you just want more and more and more? You know, and, and, and that's the way I felt. Let me tell you, I was having, and here's my point, an intimate relational experience with gumbo. It was so good. That's exactly in a corny way of saying what Jesus is saying. You must eat my flesh, drink my blood. Symbolism, spiritual, but you got to munch on me. You got to chow down on me. You got to do that. Didn't the psalmist say to meditate on God's word day and night? And the word meditate means to ruminate, the cow chewing the cud. You chew it, you chew the word, you chew the word, you get every, like a cow gets everything out of it, they swallow it bring it back up again, they chew it and chew it and get everything out of that word possible. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Come, taste and see the Lord is good. Because have you noticed, the more you chomp in this word of God, the more you, get, the more you want it. And the, the more alive it becomes. It is so good. But they don't get it because they're looking at it through physical eyes, not spiritual eyes. And so they are missing it. Now, here's my question before we move on. Is Jesus making the message easy or difficult to accept? Kind of difficult. Kind of difficult. So he's separating the wheat from the chaff. That was the point, right? So who's really going to follow him and who's really not going to follow him because of all the wrong reasons? Now let's read on in the story. Verse 55. Because I am going to cover 49 verses. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides, there's a key word right, abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the uh, Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. And here it comes. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So he continues with the whole dialogue, but I want to say this. He's teaching um, in the synagogue in Capernaum. If you've ever been to Israel or you go one day in the future with me or somebody else, you will visit this spot. You will go to Capernaum and there is the remnants, pretty good remnants still in Capernaum, of the synagogue there. The synagogue that Sarah is made out of white limestone, 4th century A.D., but as you look at the base of it, the guide will point out to you, you'll see the white limestone. Then underneath, you'll see the black basalt, basalt, basalt. I don't even say basalt. You'll see underneath that, the black basalt, basalt, that is from the era of Jesus Christ. 
That is where Jesus would have walked. But on top of it, a new synagogue now in rubble has been built over that. It's right here. Right next door to it, there's the home of Peter, where Jesus probably went to heal the mother-in-law. So you have it right there. These things still exist. They are right there. So it's a real cool thing. Verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, now, when it says disciples, it's not talking about the 12. By now, there's a massive crowd of disciples that are going. There's like the 12, the 70, and the big crowd. They're, it's broken up like that, if I remember correctly. He says, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. You think? Who can listen to it? Verse 61. But Jesus, conscious of his disciples, grumbled, uh, grumbled at this, th that his disciples grumbled at this. This is what he says. Does this cause you to stumble? In other words, you having a hard time with what I'm telling you? Does it make you stumble? The word stumble means to trip you up. Does it trip you up? Does this impede your progress? They're getting hung up on what Jesus is saying. They're not understanding and so Jesus now continues as he presses the issue. And that's point five. This is, a big, this is a very good point. If you cannot accept this, then you will not understand anything else I say. That's what Jesus is saying. If you cannot accept what, the, what I'm saying here, you cannot understand anything else I'm going to say. Look at verse 62. This backs up the point. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Think of what he just said. If you can't accept this, You'll never accept seeing the Son of Man ascend to where he was before. You're not going to get it. Isn't that what he said about Nicodemus, to Nicodemus? If I told you earthly things, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If you can't get this, you're not going to get anything else. You're going to get stuck in this spot, in this whole idea right here. Now, <clears throat> verse 63. Then he adds, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are eh, and their life, the truth. Yeah. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. He goes, everything I just told you is spiritual, not physical. And then he adds, yeah, some of you are going to believe. And then he adds, he knows who's going to betray him. Can you imagine walking with Judas all that time and you know that guy's going to betray you? You know, whenever I read that, my movie mind, you ever seen Braveheart? One of the worst betrayal parts in that movie. When William Wallace goes to battle, that one battle, and he's chasing them down and he catches the one guy and he pulls the helmet off and it's Robert the Bruce who's supposed to be on his side. And you remember when he sees him? How Mel Gibson and William Wallace just sit. And it's almost like somebody punched him in the gut. Like someone in his own camp. How could you do this? How could you do this? He didn't know this guy was a betrayer. Jesus knows. He knows the guy's going to betray him. Judas is walking with him three years. He knows. How do you walk with a guy three years? And you know, you know, this guy's going to betray you. I, that boggles my mind. I'd have cut that guy off immediately. 
I know what you're going to do, so see you later. Now, verse 65 says, And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now, we read that similar statement before in verse 44. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Let me give you a simple way of understanding that verse. Basically, he's saying no one can understand the divine teaching unless they get divine help. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. They are only spiritually appraised. No one can understand divine teaching without divine help. Is the basic idea of that right there. Now, verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Wow. He separates the wheat from the chaff. So Jesus said to the twelve, because the crowd's gone, or most of it probably, he says to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Whoa. They leave. The crowd's gone. There's no... There's probably some of the crowd, but the majority of the crowd, they're gone. Yeah, um, and if you think about why they followed for the wrong reasons or they wouldn't chomp, they wouldn't engage, they wouldn't have deeper, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That's really the issue at hand. They're not going to take the steps to further their relationship with God. They're just not going to do it. And so Jesus separates wheat from chaff. Now, what I'm going to say next, I don't mean everybody, but I thought about it a lot. You know, we went through the COVID thing and all that stuff, and it's happened all over America. I, I almost 99% believe that I think Jesus used it to separate wheat from chaff, to be honest with you. I think he did. I don't think Jesus didn't send it, but he used it. And it's a sad thing because... Now you're, you're watching this, you watch it all happen now, where he's like, oh, who really did believe and who didn't, you know? Do you know that my dad's generation is called the greatest generation, right? Some of your parents, the greatest generation. 56% of that generation attended church every Sunday. That's a really good percentage, huh? 18% of millennials attend church. We are becoming like England. England, which used to be a Christian nation, is a pagan nation. We're becoming that. You say, no, we're not. Yeah, we are. We are. Unless there's a massive harvest of the Spirit of God moving over America. It, we're, we're moving that way. It's pushed and pushed and pushed. It's moving that way. But here's what gets me. 18% of millennials attend church. And I think of all the people across America that used to attend church and now they don't. They don't munch. They don't take a deeper step. They're not in the deep engagement. They maybe they watch at home and there's a lot of people watch from home. But what are they teaching the millennials? What are they teaching them? You don't need to be in fellowship. You don't need to do any of this stuff. You don't need deeper engagement. We're do, doing a, a deep disjustice, uh, disjustice, injustice to the millennials. We're not showing the way. We're not showing the way. And the consequences are going to be worse and worse with each crop. And it's a dangerous place to be, very dangerous, because we need to be the people 
that show the way. But I think God used it. I think the Holy Spirit used it to see who, who's the real deal, who's not, who's the wheat, who's the chaff. I think it's just that simple. It's just that simple. And I think because the way things are moving in America, the lines are going to be drawn more and more. You're going to have to really be the real deal or you're going to succumb to what it is. I mean, you think about, and you know this is true. You've probably run into them. There are Christians who still, they're, they're upset over Roe v. Wade. Like, they think abortion's okay. I don't know how they think that. I don't know how they come to that conclusion scripture, which means they don't know scripture. They don't understand. They don't even know bio, biology or science because science even says embryology that life begins at conception. You know, we're moving in a, in a, in a direction that's very dangerous in our country. I have grandkids, so it makes me nervous for them because this country. But yet on the other side, I know where sin does abound, so much more disgrace abound. I know that. And I pray for my grandkids. You ask my wife. I pray for them at night. We pray. And I pray that every one of my grandkids, born, about to be born, I got one in November, and the ones who are not conceived yet, because Nathan and Lindsay are going to have a thousand kids, you know, <laughs> all of them will be dynamic, powerful Christians, bold, loving, hungry for the scriptures, hungry, hungry, lead many to Christ, not bend to the culture. That's what I pray for them. I pray for them. I had my kids in church all the time, and they fought me when they got teenagers, but now they've settled. They're all in church. Their kids are in church. I made sure of those things, you know, because that next generation, each family of Christians, that's in your hands. I had to take care of my family, and then we have to raise them up. We have to be the examples. So if you're not living as an example, clean it up, fix it up, show the way. Otherwise, why would they bother? Why would they bother? If, it, if we're not engaged, if we're not munching now, why would, if it's not that big to us, then why should it be that big to them? So we have to live these things. Now, let me get off my pedestal now and move on, okay? Now, <clears throat> um, where am I at? 66? 67? Where am I at? Oh, they're not following. Okay. Now, let me say one more thing about that. Um, okay. So Jesus makes a hard statement, right? And many leave, correct? What hard statement in the Bible scriptures turn you and I off where we say, I'll pass on that one? Wow, huh? What hard statements do we read in the Bible and say, uh, not me, I'm not going to do that? Because that's what he's pointing out right here. What is it? What, is, what, script, what statements in scripture where you and I basically say, no, I'm Adam and Eve, I'm Eve, I decide what's right and wrong, and that's not right for me? Because that's really what he's saying right there. So he's pressing them hard. Separating wheat from chaff, guys. That's what he's doing. Now, number six, you know, hopefully we'll drive it home on this one. Jesus is our only option. We started with that, right? Remember we started with that? Options? Okay, good. Verse 68, 69. Simon Peter answered him because he's, because he, he says, uh, he goes, do you guys want to leave too? Here's what Peter says. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Know, genasco, intimate relationship. We know, personal experience, we know this stuff. I love the fact that Peter says, you're the only option. There is nowhere else. There is no other answer. I've been a Christian 42 years. I've studied this thing you ask my family. I've never stopped studying it. I used to read the sports page and nothing else. When I became a Christian, this is it. 
and I've studied, and I've studied defending the faith, and I've studied things, and man, this is the only thing that makes sense. When you look at, say, the cosmological argument, and you've heard me say this before, but I'm going to keep rehearsing it for you, that, you know, that whatever had a beginning, had a cause, the universe had a beginning, therefore the universe had a cause, right? And it'd be a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, all-powerful, personal, because they made a decision person, with a mind. The only thing that it describes is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because scientists, not Christian scientists, have stated that this universe had a beginning. And it had to be a, that timeless, spaceless, immaterial, all-powerful, personal uh, mind. It only describes God. And then I go to the teleological argument or fine-tuning, and you look at everything. It's all fine-tuned for you and I to have life. Just think of the fact of your lungs and air and things like that. All these things, the tilt of the earth, the distance from the sun, everything. It's fine-tuned for us to have life. How could that be an accident? So there has to be a God. And then, and then you think about DNA. Everyone, every cell in our body, 3.4 billion, not letters, but there's four letters in different uh, structures of it, 3.4 billion letter code in our DNA. The code, these letters mean language, right? How do you get language from dead matter? There has to be a creator. You've heard me say this before, too. If you walk on the beach, Olivia's my wife. I'm Jim, last name Del Campo. If you walk on the beach and you see a heart with ODC plus JDC, you don't sit there and say, well, it must have been the ocean washing up a crab, and the crab actually combined his tail around. You don't say that. You say, that's a sign of life. Somebody wrote that, right? And yet they look at 3.4 billion letter code, and they go, oh, evolution, accident. Yeah, right. Give me a break. That's impossible, impossible. And as I told you, I think I said to you, maybe it was some other one, but they say the evolution from a lizard to a bird, one example. There is no, there's no code in a lizard that can move and make feathers. It's an impossibility. In DNA, DNA cannot give rise to new information. That's impossible. It only gives what is there, and that's all it is. So that's impossible too. So then you ask, okay, if there's a God, then which God? That's easy. Then I think historically, and that's where you use history, the way history historians judge history, that there is evidence. History, Jesus did exist. He was crucified. That, that people did see him. They confessed. Testimony, nine New Testament writers, 27 documents, that he did rise from the dead. They saw him resurrected. Outside Christianity, Tacitus, Josephus, Suetonius, not Christians, they wrote that the disciples said that they saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. So I look at all that together, I go, what else? Nothing else makes sense. It makes perfect sense. So when Peter says, to whom shall I go? I mean, he's right. It's the only thing that makes sense. So no one in this world is going to talk me out of anything. Because I know. So if anybody comes in and tells me, there is no God, my line is always going to be, well, give me your evidence because maybe I'm wrong. I know I'm not. But give me your evidence. I want to hear it. They can't give me evidence. But it opens the door for me to give evidence, and I'll be glad to give evidence on that one. Now, it makes sense that this loving God came in the form of the God-man to save us and die for our sins. It just makes sense. It just makes sense. Why wouldn't I serve this God? Why wouldn't I engage him with everything I've got in my life? Why wouldn't I? If he did all that for me, if God, the creator of it all, decides, I'm going to go down and save that guy, because that guy's lost. Man, and I'm going to change his life. Why wouldn't I serve him? With Why wouldn't I do what he wants? Now, let's run it home now. Verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a, a devil. We know who that is. We talked about him. It's Judas. Now, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, um, 
Iscariot, not his last name, more than likely. There's a city called Kerioth. So he's probably, uh, or Ish-Kerioth. City, uh, Ish, Ish means um, of, or, or son, or man. And then Kerioth is a city, so he's a man of Kerioth. So it's probably, that's what it means, Simon of Kerioth, or like that. It meant the son of him. Did I confuse you or did I confuse me? No, hopefully I made sense. Um, sometimes my brain goes too fast, I'll be honest with you. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Okay, let me finish with this. Judas, one of the twelve. Did he look like the real deal to everybody? Was he the real deal? No. <laughs> he wasn't the real deal. So let me leave you with the sober truth, okay? Do you remember a couple weeks ago I said, there are people going to be in heaven and you're going to go, you're here? How'd you get here? I never thought you'd be here. I, I, okay, but the flip side is true also. Okay, turn to Matthew chapter 7 and we'll finish with this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. And it says, Jesus speaking, because he printed it in red. Okay, Jesus didn't print it in red. Jesus says, not every one of you, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You practice lawlessness. So in these verses, do they look like the real deal? Yeah. Are they the real deal? It says, you never knew me. The key word is new. K-N-E-W, new. Genasco again, to know intimately. There was no relationship. And then he adds, you practice lawlessness. The word lawlessness there, same Greek word used for the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it actually means a person who rejects all of God's laws. So they looked like it, but they weren't it. There are some people you think, when we get to heaven, you're here? And there's other people who are going to go, How, they didn't make it? And the thing is, you and I can't tell. Only God knows. Only the Spirit knows who is sealed with the Spirit. I can't tell. They'll fool me too. And I'll be fooled the other way. You're here? Same thing. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you, Lord, for um, your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, that you let me finish. And Father, I pray we take some of this stuff home and understand, realize that you're the only option. You know our motives. You separate wheat from chaff. You do all these things. You want a strong kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.